Hello. You're listening to NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Tinbi Armias. Today, two books about lawmakers with deeply conservative political beliefs, a Republican Party that's changed around them, and the marginalization they faced as a result. In a minute, we'll hear more about the book Romney, A Reckoning, a biography of senator and former presidential candidate Mitt Romney. But first, former Congressman Adam Kinzinger became a household name during the second impeachment trial of President Donald Trump. In this interview with All Things Considered host Scott Detrow, Kinzinger recounts what it took for him to stand up to Trump in the days following the January 6th attack of the U.S. Capitol, and how, ultimately, that decision cost him his job. But his new memoir, Renegade, is also more. It's an honest look at the ways in which Kinzinger contributed to the rise of Trump, and he also talks about whether he thinks he'll ever return to politics. Here's Scott Detrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu with Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, Black Twitter, a people's history tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, premieres May 9th, streaming on Hulu. The introduction of your book, like I, I could just envision it, you sitting there with the TV on, watching the, the initial 15 rounds of votes to put Kevin McCarthy into the speakership as you, as you finished up the book and wrote that introduction. Um, I, I'm assuming you were not surprised at all when he was eventually ousted from the job, given all the, all the compromises he made to get it. No, I think that writing was on the wall. When you cut a deal with uh, what, you know, I think Boehner aptly called the terrorist caucus and you start cutting deals that make it where they hold you hostage and then you come up against real deadlines like debt limit, like government shutdowns, I think it was inevitable. You're talking about a minority of the caucus holding the rest of the caucus hostage, as you put it. I think that is the story of a lot of Republican office holders in the in the Trump era. And what this is going to be the rest of the conversation because I feel like once you start talking about Donald Trump, that's all you can talk about when it comes to things <laughs> like this. But what – I mean this is the crux of the question. What is the power that Trumpism and these forces of destruction hold over Republican voters right now? Why is it that they can attack an incumbent on social media and suddenly that is the end of that incumbent's career? I think it's a number of things. So first off – you know, people were fighting back against Trump a little more at the beginning, and then he kept winning. And so once he starts winning and once people start, you know, cease opposing him, then there becomes this air of inevitability. The other thing that I think is, isn't discussed enough, which is extremely important, is that leaders, leadership is all about the word leading. When Donald Trump, for instance, gets indicted on a number of different felonies, People's reaction that are supportive of Trump may be to initially defend him, but then they're going to watch the Republican debates. They're going to watch what other Republicans are saying. And when every other Republican is saying, this is a witch hunt, mm -hmm. people will say, okay, well, they are reaffirming what I felt about Donald Trump. And again, the kind of question on this is, if you're a Republican member of Congress, for instance, and you speak out, you might lose your job. But if nobody speaks out, you're forcing yourself to actually do what you know in your heart is wrong. And I think that gets to one of the threads of the book that I was I was most interested by, because I think people would expect you to speak out about Trumpism and, and, and Trump in this book, and you do. But there are also a lot of points where you look back 
with some regret, with sometimes some embarrassment about different ways that you went along with not necessarily Trump, but some of the things that led to Trumpism in the Republican Party over the course of your career. Uh, tell me how you're changing on how you're thinking on that changed over time. When you're when you're in the heat of battle and, you know, you need to raise money, for instance, and you recognize, which is something that I think is wrong and addictive and true, though, is that rage and fear is the best way to raise money. Well, I don't think I played as deeply and as kind of darkly as a lot of my party did, even in the early days. I was part of that. I recognize, too, that, you know, my vote against the first impeachment was was really a vote of self-preservation. Yeah. I was looking for a reason to vote against that first impeachment. I was on the fence. I found a reason, and I voted that way. And I, looking back, you know, I guess I'm glad I did only in that it allowed me to survive to the next election and fight on the January 6th side of things. But I thought that was a, a vote of cowardice on my end. So I think it's important. This was if, – yeah. If, and if and you, I, I want to talk about that for a minute actually. Yeah. This was This was the first uh, Trump impeachment. This was tied to the pressure that he put on Volodymyr Zelensky uh, at a time when Zelensky was desperate for – for American military support for reasons that became much more obvious to people uh, over the years. But this is where Trump had that conversation and basically pressured him to investigate the Biden family. When you were sitting in a room by yourself in that period of time, did you think, gut feeling, this was an impeachable offense or were you actually wavering on whether or not it rose to the level of impeachment? Oh, no, I thought it was an impeachable offense. What happened, though, is the Democrats rushed the process a little bit, and I allowed that to be the thing that convinced me that, oh, well, you know, I'd be all for impeachment, but we have to do a more thorough job of it. And so that was a, again, it was a a vote of cowardice at the same time, in a way, I probably wouldn't have survived the next election and been there for January 6th, but... That's not an excuse for that vote. In, in the end, was it was it partisanship? Was it fear? Was it calculation? Like, what was the main reason why you ended up voting against impeachment that first time? Yeah, it was a little bit of fear and calculation. The calculation was, I've got to survive. And the fear was like, what happens if I'm the only one? Uh, will I lose? Will I be on the front lines of all the threats that I eventually was on the front lines of? So I think that's a lot of what played into it. I want to talk a little bit about the January 6th commission. You, of course, voted for impeachment. You and Liz Cheney become the only two Republicans on the commission. You take a step back. A year later, there's a way to look at the commission as a huge success. And I think there's also a way to look at it as a huge failure, right? On the success side, Trump's facing multiple criminal charges now, including two different cases directly tied to trying to overturn the election. On the failure side, though, he looks like he's on a path to to winning the Republican presidential nomination. It looks like there is a a possible chance that he returns to the White House after all of this. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering how you think about this. Well, I th- I think of the part we could control as a, a great success. Now, in terms of changing opinions, we evidently couldn't do that. I know that we did a very good job of bringing that information out. I think Donald Trump is going to face justice only because of the work we were able to do. And uh, America will have to make its own opinion. But I'll say this. I think in 10 years, if you could fast forward, there's not going to be a single person on earth that ever admits that they believed Donald Trump was innocent. Do you see a world where you get back into active politics? You know, if you'd asked me this six months ago, I I may have kind of hedged and said possibly, but I was exhausted. You know, the last two years, I'm coming to grip with the toll that it really did take on my family and I, 
But as I've kind of come to grips with it and time's gone on, yeah, I could see a possibility where I get involved again. I don't want to be in the house ever again because uh, I certainly did 12 years there. That's enough. And I'd be happy to support anybody that goes in with the right cause. As you far as me, it's not a plan, though? but it's something I'd be open to. You think you could get elected uh, at this moment in the next five years? No. Now, I, well, I don't know about the next five years. If I ran today, particularly as a Republican, I'd probably get crushed in the primary, and I'm okay with that because it's a party that, frankly, I don't feel a whole lot of allegiance to at the moment. Do you still consider yourself a Republican? I do only because I'm not willing to give up and only because I haven't changed. But I also know that if everything kind of tracks the way it is in 2024, I won't be voting Republican because – Again, I think it's a simple question of democracy or no democracy, and the Republican Party represents right now a real slide to authoritarianism. Would you vote for Joe Biden then? Yeah, if it was Joe Biden and Donald Trump, I don't think there's any question I would vote for Joe Biden. That is Adam Kinzinger, a former member of Congress and the author of the new book, Renegade. Thanks so much for talking to us. Yeah, it was great. Thank you. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox streaming acclaimed original series you won't find anywhere else. With powerful performances from Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, Bella Ramsey, Matthew McFadden, and more. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Our next book is a biography and thus takes a different approach to the same issues we just heard about. In Romney, A Reckoning, journalist McKay Coppins was given exclusive access to Senator Mitt Romney. Through dozens of interviews, Coppins attempts to better understand Romney's more than two decades in public service and the decisions that took him from being the Republican candidate for president in 2012 to being a pariah in the party that now embraces Donald Trump. This outside-looking-in approach allows Coppins to see a man who's still grappling with what it means to have your political home change so drastically and how you find your way after. He discussed the book with journalist Jane Clayson. Utah Senator and former Republican presidential candidate Mitt Romney has been the focus of both admiration and derision for much of his political career. But he's always been a bit reluctant to explain himself. Until now. Mitt Romney cooperated with a new biography that takes a full accounting of his life. It's written by McKay Coppins, award-winning staff writer at The Atlantic. The biography chronicles Romney's upbringing to his early days in finance and the Salt Lake City Olympics, his first foray into politics, running against Ted Kennedy in Massachusetts, and a successful term as governor of that state, two presidential runs, and his career as a U.S. senator from Utah, where he went from Republican standard bearer to party pariah. McKay Coppins' book is Romney, A Reckoning, and McKay Coppins joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You met with Mitt Romney secretly 45 times over two years. He gave you access to hundreds of pages of private journals and emails from some of the most powerful Republicans in Washington. His candor and introspection is something we rarely see in politics today. What do you think he was hoping to achieve by opening up to you in the way that he did? 
I first started talking to him not long after January 6th. And my sense was that that experience had really shaken him. And he was in an introspective mood, taking stock of what had become of his party, what was happening to the country, and also what his own career had been and what mistakes and compromises he may have made. I think the candor was a result of his desire to expose what he considers the rot in certain elements of the GOP and to show just how much uh, hypocrisy and cynicism he's seen behind closed doors as a leader of the Republican Party. You write about the relationship between Mitt Romney and Donald Trump. Tell us how that relationship began and how it has evolved. Well, he actually first met Donald Trump in the 1990s when he went on this trip to Mar-a-Lago with some business associates and at the time sort of thought of Trump as this entertaining, brash celebrity, right? He didn't take him seriously. And that was his experience with Trump for a long time. They kind of repeatedly ended up bumping into each other at, you know, Patriots games or at various other uh, political events. It wasn't until 2012 that Romney's own political career intersected with Trump's. At the time, Romney was running for the Republican nomination uh, for the presidency, and Donald Trump was becoming a conservative political celebrity by virtue of his advocacy, basically, of a debunked conspiracy theory about Barack Obama's birthplace. And Romney accepted Trump's endorsement publicly at an event in Las Vegas. You know, at the time, Romney tells me that he didn't really consider Trump to be a serious political figure. He was just another kind of loudmouth celebrity that both Democrats and Republicans sometimes have to cozy up to. But in retrospect, he looks back and realizes that Trump was tapping into an ugly strain in our politics, a kind of conspiratorial strain in our politics that Romney himself realizes that he missed. Mm. And since then, Romney has become increasingly outspoken against Trump in the 2016 campaign and on because he thinks that Trump is not only a dangerous figure, he believes his kind of illiberal attitudes are dangerous for the country, but also he thinks that he doesn't embody the character of a U.S. president. And Romney's willingness to be outspoken about that has made him something of an outcast in his own party. But does he express any regrets that he indulged Donald Trump and the more toxic elements of the party along the way to his own political advantage? Yeah, it's a question that I asked him several times over the course of our two years of interviews. And he wrestled with this. There would be times when I felt like he was confessing some complicity in Trump's rise, and then he would sort of walk it back. I think he doesn't believe that he's the reason Donald Trump ultimately became president, but he does fess up to indulging these kind of toxic elements of his party that he just fundamentally misunderstood. I think he believed, like a lot of Republicans believed, that he could cater to far-right voters, win their votes, but still remain in charge of the party. And what happened in 2016 was that those elements of the party kind of took over, and now Mitt Romney is the one on the outside. 
You write that, and you mentioned here, that something snapped in Romney after January 6th. In fact, he had received a warning about potential violence at the Capitol in the days leading up to January 6th. And he was so concerned that he texted Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to express those mm-hmm. concerns, didn't he? He did. He actually laid out sort of the worst case scenario of what might happen on January 6th including the fact that there had been calls among some right-wing extremists to burn down Mitch McConnell's home, to smuggle guns into D.C., and, he said, to storm the Capitol. This, he showed me this text message. This was on January 2nd. Mitch McConnell never responded to that text. Mm-hmm. And four days later, when Mitt Romney was in the Senate chamber and the Secret Service rushed in and they had to be evacuated... He was consumed with anger that his party had not only indulged Trump's election lies and allowed this to happen, but that they hadn't made any preparations for this scenario that Romney had explicitly warned about just a few days earlier. In your book, Mitt Romney describes some of his Republican colleagues in pretty harsh terms. He says of Ron DeSantis, there's just no warmth at all. New Gingrich, he calls smarmy, too pleased with himself. Rick Santorum, sanctimonious, severe and strange. Rick Perry, Republicans must realize that we need to have someone who can actually complete a sentence. And Ted Cruz, frightening, scary, a demagogue. But Romney also describes Ted Cruz and people like Josh Hawley as some of the smartest people in government who not only abide Donald Trump, but they prop him up. And Romney says over Mm -hmm. and over, they know better. And that's really, I think, the hardest thing for him right now is that he believes that people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are much too smart to believe For example, the election lie, the 2020 election was stolen, to believe some of the things that they say in defense of Donald Trump. And the fact that they are, in Romney's view, so disingenuous really gets under his skin. He actually told me that those colleagues who genuinely believe outlandish conspiracy theories, he's more okay with them because at least they're being honest about what they believe. It's the fact that So many of his colleagues seem to think so little of Republican voters that they put on this phony air of believing in these crazy things to appease them. And he says over and over again, he said it to me and he said it publicly, the best way for us to show respect to our voters is to tell them the truth. In fairness, some of the people Romney writes about, some of his critics, claim that he is a chameleon, a flip-flopper, politically advantageous, that he has changed his positions over the years to meet the job at hand. He became a much more conservative senator from Utah than he ever was in Massachusetts. Is there something slightly opportunistic about Mitt Romney, the politician? Yeah, I think that there's no way to look at the arc of Mitt Romney's career without acknowledging that he has at times reinvented his political persona to match the moment that he was in. At this moment, he is about as true to himself as he's been in his political career. But part of this book reckons with those compromises he's made. And, you know, a lot of our conversations sort of revolved around him trying to wrestle with difficult questions about what his life in politics has cost him. And I think that part of what made him such a compelling subject to me is that he is willing to be vulnerable about that and answer difficult questions about it. And I think that more of our elected leaders should be willing to do that. 
More than once, Mitt Romney has considered a third run for the presidency. You write that he reached out to Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia about starting a new party. The working title of that party is Stop the Stupid. Um, We support (laughs) anything that's not stupid. Is that still a possibility? My understanding is that, at least for now, that idea has been put on ice. Mitt Romney's biggest concern is that any third-party presidential candidate may inadvertently end up helping Donald Trump. And as much as he disagrees with Joe Biden on a number of policy issues, he thinks Trump would be a far more dangerous figure to have a second term in the Oval Office. And so he doesn't want to do anything to help him. I will say this, and this is my own opinion as his biographer and somebody who spent a lot of time with him. I think he's itching to get in there. (laughs) I think that if somebody could convince him that running a third-party bid wouldn't end up helping Trump, even if it didn't result in Romney winning, I think he'd get in in a second. Because there is a part of him that wants to just kind of run for president one last time and actually say everything that he believes, which he didn't feel like he could do in his last two campaigns. Your personal takeaway, McKay, after writing this book? I continue to think that Mitt Romney is a complicated guy and that his record and legacy are in some ways pretty complicated. But I think there's something inspiring about him as a political leader in the final chapter of his career, following his conscience, even when it meant the end of his political future. There are so many people in politics who are making their decisions based purely on Will this help me get reelected? And I think that the story of Mitt Romney suggests that we can demand more from our elected officials, that we should demand that they think seriously about what's right and do what's right and not just worry about their own political fortunes. McKay Coppins is an award-winning staff writer at The Atlantic. His new book is Romney, A Reckoning. Congratulations on the book, McKay. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. If you want more, you can sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter slash books. I'm Tinbi Dermias. The podcast is produced by Isabella Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The show elements for this week were produced and edited by Samantha Balaban, Hiba Ahmad, Melissa Gray, Justine Kennan, Eric Ryan, Mallory Yu, Courtney Dorning, Tyler Bartlam, Todd Munt, and Emiko Tamagawa. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thank you so much for listening. On Wildcard, the new podcast from NPR, you'll hear people like comedian Jenny Slate reflect on their lives. What is something you think about very differently today than you did 10 years ago? Dressing. Like, not salad dressing. I've always loved it and I'll never stop. Dressing my body. That's all part of the new game show, Wildcard, only from NPR. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.